you can see where people are like, if they want to spend that kind of money, you'll get to that level and it becomes the luxury package. But I just caution you, especially, especially with breeders and live animals, but anybody starting a new business, if you price things lower, those people will have less expectations for you, which is okay in the beginning because those people, anything that you do that's above and beyond what they expected will wow them. Welcome to the Wear, Wag, Repeat podcast. I'm Tori Mystic. As a dog mom lifestyle expert, blogger, and business owner, I love talking to other women in the pet industry and sharing their advice with you every week. Sit, stay, and listen to the latest episode. Last week, I shared that the Wear, Wag, Repeat podcast hit 100,000 downloads. Oh my gosh, this is so epic, and I really just can't thank you enough. Whether you've only listened to a handful of episodes, or this is your first day listening, or you maybe listened to all 214, which, go you, I'm not even sure that I've listened to all 214. But I really, really want to thank you for continuing to be a listener. Uh, To make sure you never miss an episode, make sure that whatever podcast player you are on, that you are subscribed to the show. So hit the little plus mark or hit the subscribe button, depending on what app you're on. Make sure that you're subscribed, and then that way you won't miss a single episode. So to celebrate this 100K milestone, I thought that this week I would share the most downloaded episode Ever. This is an interview with Julie Swan, aka The Honest Breeder. It originally aired as episode 184. Julie and I had an interesting conversation about pricing, amongst other things. But pricing is really an important component of her business as a dog breeder. The right pricing structure can attract the kind of quality puppy parents that she wants for her dogs. You'll want to hear about the psychology behind this and see how you can maybe implement this mindset into your own pet business. A few other things to note is that Julie has really mastered monetizing her expertise. So not only does she run a whole business based around her German short-haired pointers and her terriers, but she also runs a membership for dog breeders. She also has a podcast and she does one-on-one coaching. It's really inspiring for me to see what she has done with her business and how she's grown it. And I think there's a ton of inspiration here. I really hope that you enjoy re-listening to this conversation or maybe hearing it for the first time. And I want to know if you want to relive more great interviews from the podcast archives. Like I said, this is episode 214. So there are a lot of really wonderful interviews with women in the pet industry. To help you find the episodes that are most helpful to you, I created a quiz where you can discover your ideal petpreneur podcast playlist. From an underdog champion to a prosperous petpreneur, there are five playlists curated just for you. Take the quiz at wherewagrepeat.com slash playlist quiz and you can fetch your results. Okay, so here we are going to play this interview with Julie, and I hope you enjoy it. Julie Swan is a dog breeder and dog breeding business strategist. 
She is the founder and CEO of the Dog Breeder Society, a monthly membership and community for dog breeders looking to build an integrity-based, profitable dog breeding business that they love. She's the host of the Honest Dog Breeder podcast, a podcast dedicated to the honest truth about breeding dogs, as it is not all rolling around in the grass with puppies, even though we wish all of our jobs were. (laughs) In her home life in Southern Arizona, she breeds German short-haired pointers and rat terriers. She has a daughter and a son that she does homeschool with, and she is supported by an amazing and terribly patient man. On weekends, she's out with the dogs, cleaning kennels, hanging out with the kids on bike rides, or snuggling up for some homemade popcorn to watch a good Origins movie. Hey, Julie. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on the show. I I always love to have another podcaster on and you're starting a new membership community, which I love as well. Uh, So I think we're going to have a lot to talk about. Um, But what's kind of cool is I I hardly ever have breeders on the show, (laughs) even though this is a pet industry show, there's just so many things that people can do in the pet industry um, that we haven't, I haven't had a lot of breeders on. So I'm really excited to have you here and, and share this, you know, integrity-based, super honest, just wholesome approach that you have. No, I appreciate it. I know breeders are kind of on the black market when it comes to the whole dog world. And so, you know, there's always that tension with some people, but I appreciate you having me on. I'm so excited to be here. Right. It, it almost feels like a controversial topic um, to talk about dog breeding, but, you know, dogs have to come from somewhere. And so we might as well educate people how to do it honestly and safely and Absolutely. healthily and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. I always feel people deserve to have a healthy dog with a good sound temperament that they don't have to worry about. And the only place to get that on a consistent basis is through a breeder. Right. And also I just, for everyone listening, I know we're kind of just like diving in here. Um, but I'm just excited to talk to you. Uh, I was listening to a bunch of your episodes of your podcast and you, you hunt with your dogs. Um, I'm not with your terriers. Do you do any kind of like ratting and stuff? I haven't yet, but it's mostly because it's sparse out here, but I will say that bill may or may not collect old vehicles and I may or may not use my rats to keep the engine wiring cleared up. So we don't have a rat problem. So that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Yeah. So you, you actually are, you know, breeding working dogs or sporting dogs, um, that have, you know, an extra purpose for some people. Um, and, and it's an important, it's an important thing to provide. Um, so tell us, let's, let's go back in time. How did you get in to dog breeding? Oh, it was horrible. I had no plans for it. Um, I was a city girl, you know, and I moved out here with the army and, um, anyway, long story short, my ex-husband and I, we didn't do anything at a normal pace. Like it was like, Hey, yeah, we'll just go start it. And so I ended up with like, we had our house on five acres and immediately had horses, chickens. We were looking at getting turkeys. We had goats and we were looking at adding pigs and he was an avid redneck from Mississippi. So he was like, Oh, I got to get a, got to get a hunting dog. And I'm like, Oh gosh, breeding dogs are so expensive. I don't know if I want to do this, you know? And then a friend at work ended up having one and he knew we were interested and he just walked up to us in the parking lot one day at work. And he says, I have to go live in an RV on my son's property in Missouri. I have two German short hairs 
and that ain't happening. Do you want my stud dog? And I was like, sure. Like no idea what I was getting into. Like total idiot. I had a six month old daughter. Like, what was I thinking? This dog was crazy. So anyway, so we had this fantastic dog buster and he pushed me to my limits. I mean, I was like borderline, never thought about getting rid of a dog, but I was on the fence with this dog. And then we crate trained and I was like, oh, okay, okay. We can handle this now. And after we kind of got boundaries in place and I stepped up my game a little bit as a quote unquote trainer, I am not a trainer. I, um, we at least had a flow and he was just the best dog. I mean, my little girl, she could like, she could ride on his back. She could climb all over him. She grabbed him like in every area. And he was all like, Hey, like, can you get your puppy? And so he was just a fantastic dog. And I thought he looked good. Um, but I, I didn't really know, you know, I'd been breeding goats and then one day <laughs> she came out and she comes up and she says, I'm interested in some of your goats. And as she's walking up, she sees Buster run around the yard and she goes, that's a really nice dog. And I was like, well, I think so. You know, she's like, I breed Dobermans. Like he's really nice. You want to breed him? And I was like, you know, I kind of thought about it, but I never really did anything. And she said, well, I think he would be of quality to breed. And I was like, okay. And that just kind of like set that bug in my head. And so I ended up contacting his breeder, talked to him about the whole shenanigans. And I realized the guy kind of had ulterior motives when I visited him a week later to get his papers and he sent me home with five dogs. So needless to say, I fell into breeding really fast. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I do not recommend it. I do not pitch that, but, um, I didn't have anyone. I didn't have a mentor. I didn't really have anyone. That girl was very helpful in a couple of things, but Doberman's short hair is not really the same thing. Um, and so anyway, so long story short, as we move forward, I just fell in love with it. I fell in love with giving people what Buster gave our family and, that was my whole goal on breeding. And so that's where I, that's what started. So that's where, you know, I am today. And I want to give people that perfect family hunting dog so that they can make all the memories that we have with Buster. Right. That's a wonderful story. And I, I love how you pointed out that you just kind of fell into this by accident, but it sounds like you guys kind of like were easy to convince to fall into things. (laughs) You were not the smartest. I'll put it that way. I feel like I'm much better now. wiser with age, you know, you go. I got a couple plus hair. side, I guess. Um, but, but like you said, there weren't really resources. There wasn't a dog breeder society, yeah, right. dog breeder podcast. None yeah. of this stuff existed. Um, and so you just kind of had to wing it, I guess, and figure it out as you went along. I did. Yeah. I, I was winging it like no one's business, like taking like goat knowledge and trying to apply it to dogs. And like, that's not very good. <laughs> And then I would go on Facebook groups, you know, I figured out that there were some Facebook groups and they were awful. Breeders are so mean to each other in Facebook groups. And, you know, you get in there and they'll be like, well, they don't do it like I do it. So clearly they're a backyard breeder. Well, there's like a million ways to skin a cat. And so I just realized like, as long as you keep the, the, the well-being of the dog and the well-being of the family that owns the dog in your mind then as long as you run all your decisions through that vetting process, you're, you're usually not wrong. And, and there's a lot of options and ways to get it done. And so I started to have this like more open mind to it. Um, and then in, in 2016, I had a terrible thing happen. Um, we had puppies that like I had 20 puppies on the ground, three letters, and I had sent puppies home. We had just had this big rainstorm. I'd sent a dog all the way to Alaska, which is pretty far from Arizona. Right. 
And all of a sudden my puppies started getting lethargic. They stopped eating. They stopped drinking. And some of them started to die. And I just was like, I don't even know what's happening. And my vet was testing it. She's like, it's not Parvo. It's not Coccidio. We don't know what it is, but it's not working. So I'm like calling people. I'm like, Hey, if your dog starts doing this, like you need to get them into the clinic right away. I was sending people back their money, like left and right. And we finally figured out it was Giardia, which is like, mm-hmm. you may have heard of Montezuma's revenge, but it's the same thing. Right. Yeah. Um, bacteria and in the water. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's a protozoan and it sucks and it latches on in those GI tracts and those little puppies. They only have like 48 hours of resources. And so we found out that the rain had brought it on because the puppies that had gone home before the rain didn't have any problems. And the ones after did. So anyway, long story short, I lost eight puppies and Thankfully, none of the puppies that were already with people died, but Mm -hmm. I lost them. And I just went through this whole time of just, do I even deserve to be a breeder? Like I brought these things and these babies into the world and I didn't follow through. And I almost got out of breeding at that point in time because I just felt, I felt so responsible. And then I got thinking, and I had this little voice in my head said, if you don't figure this out and share this knowledge, then you let those eight puppies die in vain. And I said, okay, like I, I can't do that. So I, I figured it out. I spent hundreds of hours on the internet, like looking at things, understanding it, trying to understand everything I can about this stupid thing. And I finally came up with go figure oregano oil kills Giardia mm-hmm. as long as you catch it relatively soon. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to create a mixture that you could dose orally in a syringe, no needle, of course. And it cured it. And so I have not lost a dog to it since. And I just, you know, I realized that given my business degree, cause I did go to university for business and, um, my love for this dog breeding, I knew that I could, I could bring those things together and I could help breeders do what I was doing and, and build that program that they wanted. And so it yeah. took me a couple of years to really get my feet under underway and maybe rotate men because Bill's a lot more supportive. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and now I'm finally in a position where I can, I can help other breeders. You know, it's just, I think it's the passion for, for these pets and for these animals that, that leads us all to do what we do because, you know, everything, you know, everyone who's, who listens to this show and who's part of my world, I know that, that everything that we do, we're trying to improve the lives of pets and their people. And, you know, I definitely hear that in your story too. And, um, you know, it's not just the breeders and the puppies, but it's like all the families that your dogs go yes. to. Okay, and then it. the people who meet the, their friends who meet the puppy when they come over, like, it's just, I mean, it, you, you're reaching like tens of thousands of people. I don't know if you know this. Yes. <laughs> well, at the end of the day, it is, it's like a domino effect because you know, the last thing I would want is to sell someone a puppy and they take it home and it changes their whole life negatively. Mm-hmm. You know, now they don't invite friends over because they're afraid of how the dog acts. Now they can't walk through their door without all oh, the dog throwing a fit. You know, I just, so it's so important to make a dog that improves people's life because when those people's life are improved by that dog, they give the dog the world. And, yeah. and I'm, that's the best way to guarantee quality of life for your puppies is to take care of your owners. Did you hear the news? I created a quiz to help you find your petpreneur personality type. Answer four quick questions and not only will you discover what type of petpreneur you are, but you'll also get a curated playlist of the Wear Rag Repeat podcast designed for exactly where you are in your pet business right now. 
From an underdog champion to a possum petfluencer or a prosperous petpreneur, each playlist includes 12 episodes from the archives. Plus, after you get your results, you'll receive a few emails from me with special advice to help you reach your pet business dreams. Take the quiz and fetch your results today at wearwagrepeat.com slash playlist quiz. Well, and so I think this is maybe a good transition to, hmm. to a topic I wanted to ask you about, and we can talk more dog hmm. stuff, but sure. to talk, to talk the business stuff for a minute, hmm. um, you have a really great podcast episode that I was like hooked on about pricing and how your pricing can really attract the right customers or the wrong customers, um, and sort of, um, the perceived value in, in certain things. And I know it, it, it can be kind of a touchy and emotional topic to talk about pricing dogs because they're living things. Um, but, but you broke it down in a really great way and it, I'll just let you kind of take the sure. mic, um, sure. and, and talk about it a little bit, because I thought this applied to everyone in every pet niche, not just breeders, but I just love how you described it. Thanks. Thanks. Sure. So I would say, you know, to put people's mind at ease, the reason we charge for puppies one is because yes, they cost money and they take time and I want to be there to support them. And I need financial to ability to do that. But more importantly, if people don't pay for something, they don't value it. And at the very core, that is why you price puppies. Um, having that said, the price you put puppies at is going to attract wildly different customers. And again, this goes with any product. The pricing is going to be very, very influential on who you're attracting because you have those people that, you know, maybe they say they want a drummer shorter and they really just want to check the box. Like they have the cool car, but it never gets mud on it. Like, you know, or the truck, right? They say they go hunting, but really they go out and drink beer with their buddies. You know, that might be the person you're attracting. And so they really just need a really sweet dog that's going to do well with their kids and look the part. And so, you know, depending on what you're going for and who your ideal customer is, you're going to, um, what you, the, the picture you put and, and the money that goes with it is part of that. Um, I think one of the interesting things was when I, first started breeding, I priced my puppies very low. They were at like $500. I had no idea like marketing and I didn't know where to look to even base it, but I was like, okay, that sounds good. Sounds good. And I found that the people I was attracting at the $500 price range, they were just so good. They were good people. They were young kids. Like they usually wanted to, um, they want to get out. They want to do stuff. And they were the people that would otherwise have gone to the shelter and bought a dog, but they didn't because they knew they needed it to have some skills. Like it needed to be a hunting dog. Okay, cool. So they had zero expectations at that price point from me. Like they didn't even know I would ever be available to take a phone call from them again. Like that's the kind of expectations they had. It was nothing, you know, fast forward, you move into a little bit higher price point, which for my breed happened to be like around the thousand, $1,200 range. Um, those people came to the table educated. Like they'd looked at multiple breeders and they had questions. And I was like, cool. I like this, <laughs> you know? And, but they were willing to put the work in. They were the kind of people that would call me on the way to the vet and said, Hey, we're going to the vet. What do you think about this? And I love that because they gave me such good feedback and it was educated feedback. They weren't willy nilly. They didn't want to blame me for everything. Like we were partners in this relationship, trying to figure out the best way to take care of this dog. 
And then something funny happened. The market changed a little bit. I was like, hey, I'm getting a lot of people calling me for dogs. Bump my price up. And all of a sudden, I move into this higher price point, which isn't a whole bunch for German shorters at like $1,500. But once I got to about $1,500, people stopped doing any research. It was the strangest thing. They were like, I want the pretty dog. I'll pay for it. And I don't care. You tell me what I need. And all of a sudden, it was a, they wanted me to do everything. And it it really changes the dynamic. And they're the kind of people that like, they don't always want to sit and listen. When you get to the higher price point, they think just because they paid more money, they should be taken care of. And I suppose this applies, you know, in, in photography, for example. So say you're running a photography business for pets. If they just say, I need to check the box and I need the most affordable package for this puppy. Okay. Then, you know, you want to sell them on more shots. You want to sell them on quick and efficient you're going to give them a list of things to bring and you're going to call it good. And it's going to be a good deal. You're going to talk mm-hmm. about the value. Right. And then if you want to get to that luxury high-end photography with pets, right. You're going to have this moment where you're like, I have all the stuff. I've got pretty collars. I've got little outfits. I've got different scenes. I've got it all set up. You just come here with a dog. We'll even do the grooming. Right. And so you can, you can see where people are like, if they want to spend that kind of money, you'll get to that level and it becomes the luxury package. But I just caution you, especially especially with breeders and live animals, but anybody starting a new business, if you price things lower, those people will have less expectations for you, which is okay in the beginning because those people, anything that you do that's above and beyond what they expected will wow them. And they're going to be great people for testimonials. They're going to be great people to give you honest feedback. And they're going to be blown away by the service you provide. And I love that because it's such a great way to get your feet wet in any business. And then eventually you can move up. And as you get better, then, you know, I don't think I've been asked a question. I didn't have an answer to in about three years with dogs. And so, yes, now I can handle those people, Yeah, (laughs) but I could not have when I first started. Well, I I think it's just, it's, it's just fascinating. Like the whole psychology of, of pricing. I'm sure there's like a thousand books you could read about it. Uh, Yeah. But, but I I think it sounds like that sweet spot's kind of in the middle. At least that would be my perception um, Mm -hmm. of like these informed people who care, who appreciate all that you put into it, the quality, all the tests you have to do, all the vet appointments you have to go do all the things. Right. (laughs) Cause you know, I think a lot of people don't know what goes into breeding. Um, but then you do get like the rich people who just expect everything to be done for them. Like is, will the dog show up trained perfectly? Will it already know how to do everything? Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's very, very interesting. And I, you know, I do think in essence, when people buy a dog, just like when they buy a vehicle, they are buying a lifestyle. And I think it's very important to understand that as breeders or anyone working in, in the industry, that we're not just selling things or products or dogs, we're selling a lifestyle and you have to give them the experience that they want for that lifestyle. And so that's a really key. I I found that when you're working with your customers, give them the experience they want in this project, in this process. Mm -hmm. Do you ever or often have to turn away, um, dog parents who aren't a good fit for German short-haired pointers. Oh yeah. Yeah, we do. And I, I'm actually, this is my, this is a part I suck at sometimes, but I'm, I'm all about like the little man or like the, the giving people a chance that other people wouldn't give a chance. And so I do end up working with a lot of people that have never had the breed before. Um, they, 
they seem like they have good intentions. And what's really, really funny is that sometimes it absolutely is horrid and I get the dog back. And then sometimes it's the best thing ever. And it was, they're the best dog owners because they did all their research and they really cared. And they always talked to me. And so I still feel inclined to help those people, but I do get burned on it from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's, that's a very high energy <laughs> specific they're dog. Just, they're ridiculous. You know, they're <laughs> loving and super ridiculous. Like they're the kind of person that like sleeps by the door. And then when somebody knocks on it, they're like, Oh, they probably brought me food, you know, and they would let the stranger in here's the fridge, you know? Yeah. They're, they're their own special breed. Yeah. Um, so what do you wish that people, because, you know, there's this whole adopt don't shop kind of thing, which I think is a very flawed slogan. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> because it should, it, well, it's, it's catchy, you know, I guess. Um, but something that would maybe be more accurate is like adopt and shop from responsible breeders. <laughs> right, right. But that's not very catchy to say. Um, yeah. And so there's this whole adopt own shop. And I, I feel like it just, it just, no pun intended, but it like breeds this like animosity amongst yeah. people, yeah. you know, against breeders. So what do you, what do you wish that kind of the general dog loving public knew about breeders? Sure. Well, first off, I would say that our success is defined by your success with the dog, whether, you know, whether or not you know, it's not okay. If it's just, okay. Like I want you to be wowed by the dog. I want that dog to change your life. I want those memories to be exactly what you wanted. And I don't ever want you to go to therapy because you got one of my dogs. Right. And that's important to me. Whereas I feel like success for a shelter or rescue is low inventory. And so ultimately their whole goal is to keep you keeping your dog and to get rid of the dogs that are surrendered to them. And so if those people are struggling with the dog, but it's not returned, it's not really their problem yet. And I, I so I feel like what we use as success is greatly different. And so from a cultural standpoint, just the world of dogs, I really wish people would, would instead of saying, I need to get a dog now, they would say, hey, I think I should start looking for a dog. And I should find out what kind of dog will do well with my lifestyle, the personality, the temperament, the drives, because it's in the trainers I've talked to it 70%, they estimate of problems with dogs. And the reasons trainers are hired is because the lifestyle of the family does not align with the light or with the drives of the dog. And so if the dog has, you know, like I have a cattle dog and he's a control freak, if I'm irregular in my schedule, he loses his mind. He can't handle it. My GSP is like a care less. Um, but you see, so if I have an erratic schedule, I would be much better aligned with a German short hair and that cattle dog will lose his brain. And so I'm not a good fit for a cattle dog normally. Right. Yeah. And so once people understand that it's not about the look of the dog and it's not just about checking the box of having a dog, then they can find a dog that really aligns with their household. And when you do that, being with the dog and giving the dog the quality of life becomes easy because it's natural. Right. That's why it's kind of easy when you get along, like with your kids, right? Because they're a lot like you. So they have the same quirks and they have the same issues. And I can appreciate all my ridiculousness of my kids because it comes from me. So, right. Same thing. Yeah. I, I do wish that more people considered this. Um, and I think here's another controversial topic, but like <laughs> the whole doodle craze um, of everyone getting every conceivable kind sure. of doodle. Um, they're not all very conducive to those people's 
lifestyles. Like hypo, this is, I, I thought of this the other day is like hypoallergenic is not a personality trait. <laughs> Correct. It's yeah. not a reason to get a breed really. Um, because that's just one very small aspect of who they are. So it's, you know, it's it important. Is, it is definitely an interesting dynamic because you, you want those kids that have an allergy or say their mom has an allergy and they can't, the kid wants a dog, but mom's allergic. So if you could find a way for the dog, you know, the kid to have a dog, like I'm all about it. And so I understand that that does narrow you to some options. And I know that it's not a perfect hypoallergenic, but it is a little easier. I get it. Right. Um, and so I, I can't be mad at it, right? There's a need, the people want it. And if you can breed as a breeder, a a consistent temperament and drive in a doodle, how about it? You know, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but, but yes, the public should understand that just because it's a doodle doesn't mean it's going to be a great fit for them. And we should be looking at other characteristics because honestly, there's a ton of doodles out there. So if you're set on getting a doodle for the hair, go find, you know, the cross, that's going to be a dog that aligns with you. We were, I was joking with a doodle breeder the other day and I was like, why do you think it works? Because there's so many people that don't have issues when they cross with poodles. Like, how is this happening? And we decided that poodles are kind of vanilla. Like they can kind of go with anything. And so they end up taking on the traits, um, personality temperament of the dog they're crossed with a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And so that ends up working out in doodle breeders favors, but it doesn't necessarily mean that every cross out there is going to work that way. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and I think they're just so cute. They're all cute. I've never seen one. That's not cute. They're all very cute. (laughs) And so I could see, you know, how people are sold on that aspect, but, um, just because it's hypoallergenic doesn't mean that it's low maintenance by any means. (laughs) No. And I've heard some groomers that are losing their brains over some of these doodles. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure. Well, I didn't mean to get off on this whole tangent. No, I love doodles, everyone, whoever's listening to this. <laughs> no, they're so cute. I could look at doodle pictures on Instagram all day. I swear. They're so and, cute. Yeah. And I would pet every single one that I see. Mm-hmm. Um, so in like the few minutes that we have left here, um, I, I want to ask you about your dogs because um, you told me how many dogs you have. And it is the most number of dogs that I think any of my guests <laughs> have ever had themselves. So, so tell us about your own, they're your pets, right? But they're your also kind of like your colleagues. Um, Yes. Tell us about your pets. I think they're almost like employees in a weird way. Um, yes, no, I, I have like around 20 now. Okay. Like Bill came to me and I inherited some dogs and, um, I have that rescue dog that I had when she was a year old, who's got terrible hip dysplasia, bad elbows. She can't see, she can't hear. She's 14 and going strong. Um, so we have those, you know, I don't get rid of them. And then, um, and then we just, I have a, I have a giant breeding program, right? So I've got four dogs right now in my rat terrier program. Cause it's still growing. And then I have, um, I have to count them. Is that bad? So I says five females and three studs right now in my in my other, in my short hair program. And so, and I'll be retiring some, and then I'll be bringing in some new ones and retaining some new ones. And it's, it's a rotating thing all the time. And do you ever take your dogs out to, to see stud dogs in like other States and stuff, or do you, you keep it kind of within your own house? I'm kind of a control freak. So I, (laughs) I like to have as much control as possible. I believe in natural breeding and natural well-being. Um, I always feel like 
things got a little out of hand with turkeys when we started to have to do AI to make larger breasted turkeys for Thanksgiving. And so, I don't know, for me personally, I think the margin of error is a lot less when I have my own dogs, I do natural whelping, natural breeding, all that stuff. And so that's what we do. So I do own all my own dogs now, occasionally, like right now I'm in my fifth generation and I'm tying it back together, which is so exciting to bring my two maternal lines after generations of outcross back together and rehoning it. Um, so I did place a couple studs that I bred in homes of buyers that I really trust. Like usually it's their second dog from me and we've had a good relationship. And so, um, they, we have a, uh, kind of like a co-owned contract where I just really want one puppy out of this dog. And so I'm just going to say, Hey, we're just going to breed her until the dog or breed him until the dog I want comes out. Yeah. Um, and so like, they're really, really cool with that. But for the most part, I'm, I'm not importing semen or anything crazy. Like I just kind of keep it simple. It's a crazy world that you're in. Yeah. It's a little nuts. I know (laughs) some breeds have to be C-section. Some breeds have to be AI. And I, I just think that that is so much, it's so much pressure on you. It's so much pressure on the dog. It's just, it's a lot. And so it's um, probably a lot of trauma for the dogs. It's, I think it's just, it's when you get to a point in your breeding program where people are now expecting to get a puppy, right. And they're planning their life around it then it, it's my due diligence to, to make that happen. And so the, the least amount of things I can have go wrong is better. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Well, Julie, I could talk to you all day. I have a million <laughs> other questions, um, but luckily I can go listen to hours of you <laughs> talking sure. on your own podcast. <laughs> yeah. Um, but tell everyone where, where can they learn more about you? Um, you also, we did, we didn't really get to talk about it much, but you have your new society that's launching sure. soon and there's a wait list for that. So tell everyone where they can get involved in all of this. Sure. Um, the first thing, if you want to, if you're interested in dog breeding, I do have a roadmap to dog breeding that you can download. It's at honestdogbreeder.com forward slash roadmap. And it's basically the 12 steps to kind of get you started on how to, the, the process it is to get a successful breeding program off the ground. Um, and so the Dog Reader Society, what it is, is every month, it's going to be a deep dive with a masterclass into one aspect of breeding. And the design is that I know breeders are busy, but if we can dedicate two to four hours a month to improving our program, then we can we can actually build that breeding program that we love and, and producing dogs that fulfill our owner's dreams. And I think that's so important because we really need more well-bred dogs out there. And this is how to do it. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, we could talk about this for so long, um, but in your, in your society, I'm just curious because you are like one of the most tech savvy breeders <laughs> that I've come across. Will you also be kind of teaching people about, you know, the importance of marketing and Absolutely. and some of the stuff that you do? Absolutely. The unfortunate or bonus secret to dog breeding is that it's only half dogs. The rest of it is dealing with people and business stuff. And so given my background and my need, the need for it out there, I will be focusing heavily on the dog business side of it. And so it's everything from marketing, finding your the correct customers, building a quality website. I think what one thing people don't understand is like, especially with COVID, right? People aren't visiting homes anymore. They're not going to your kennel to see your dogs. They're talking to you on FaceTime. They're, you know, they're doing things. FaceTiming puppies. Exactly. Or you're shipping them across the country. And so the odds of somebody actually coming up and showing up at my property becomes smaller and smaller, the more my program grows. And so your website is your virtual kennel. And so if you don't have a good website, like people, they're not going to know, they're not going to get that feel from you. And so I love to build a website that 
that attracts my ideal puppy buyer and also repels all the people that won't be good fits for my dogs. And so that's kind of the key. So we'll do all kinds of information on how to build your website and how to get your social media going and make all that work for you. I love it. I'm excited. I'm excited to follow you and see it launch and all this kind of stuff. So um, thank you so much for sharing, sharing your corner of the pet world with us today and for being such a great guest. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. What did you like most about this episode? Find me on Instagram at teamistic and let me know what intrigued you or what questions you have about starting or growing your own dog-inspired business. You can also screenshot this episode and tag me in your stories. I love to see who is listening out there. Some of the best conversations happen after the episode, right? So track me down over on Instagram or join the Wear Wag Repeat Labs Facebook group to connect with other dog-obsessed entrepreneurs. And as always, you can find all the links and resources discussed in this episode at wearwagrepeat.com slash podcast. See you back here next week.